笑了。Hi everyone! Welcome to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute. We have a special episode for you this week. Our very first ever returning celebrity guests, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cameron Kim Dawson, producer of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Give it up for Kim. Hey, hey, hey thanks, Scott. All right. How are you doing, Kim? Hey, everybody. Hi. And I should I should mention that we were supposed to have Bobby Herbeck here. Uh, but because of a schedule thing, Bobby and I spoke a little bit earlier, so I'm going to be dropping bits of our conversation with Bobby in as we go. Uh, but let's be honest. I mean, we're really all here for Kim anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We love Bobby, and Bobby <laughs> had us in stitches the whole time. I do, too. I, we wouldn't be talking if it weren't for Bobby, that's for sure. <laughs> so first thing I have to ask, last time we saw you, uh, the world was relatively normal, and now it's assuredly not how are you doing how are you how how are things in your life these days well you know um things are actually pretty good we're we're, we're obviously hunkered down like like almost everybody um but we live in central florida so it's 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 not a bad place to be we have um we have a lot of outdoor space we can walk around a lot and um my wife and i we have a 93 year old grandma who lives with us and um and two five-year-old grandsons who hang out here quite a bit. So it's, it's fun. We, we're, we're doing all right. Oh, I'm glad that you guys are around family. That's nice. Um, yeah, that's a wide generational gap you've got. Yeah. I know. It's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, um, you know, it's, it's just the result of uh, we adopted Grandma Mary because um, uh, we didn't – my wife and I don't have parents anymore. And she came into our life when we moved to Florida and – She's never left, so Aww. we have a second family. Adorable. Um, and the other thing I should mention is that last time we talked to you, back when the world was normal, we had all these grand plans for a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 30th <laughs> anniversary celebration. There was a book and a documentary. You were all talking about all these crazy things. So how did that go? <laughs> that really was a reunion. We had not all seen each other until... May 23rd. Well, we got, well, I, that's not fair. We, we had a rehearsal, a get-together the day before, and there was a lot of talk about if we wanted to read the whole script. And I was, I was one that's dissenting vote says, we don't want to make people sit there and or reading. And then the door, slowly the door opens, they'll read all the slug lines. I said, let's just pick, that's just people's favorite scenes, you know, which I think we hit those. Poor Elias was trying to get in on the Zoom call, the whole show. That's why I came in at the very end. Yeah, he well, didn't. He'd never done a Zoom thing, and he wasn't sure what to do. And he's just a poor guy, but he he made an appearance. I give Judith credit; she pulled a lot of those people together for us to pull that off because they'd all lived together basically and worked together. Because she only did the first movie, as you know, she wasn't. That was one April only shot, and she anyway she was able to get work Elias to come and do this for the longest time. He was not going to have anything to do with that reunion and then the poor guy finally decides to do it and he can't get in and then he got he came in at the very end but it was cool that he made it so we did you know we, we ended up we had autograph shows lined up we had uh we did a, a, a virtual san diego comic-con obviously we did hawaii uh what else we did a couple of others wanted to do new york but we i was in touch with them they had us on the menu and next thing i know 
I think it's the week before and I look and I go, oh my God, the New York Comic Con is this week. Coming up, it was too late. And whoever I talked to had dropped the ball on us. Yeah. He was going to circle back to me, but I, it's the way I work is, no, no, I'll circle back to you. I just didn't have it on my... I, Go ahead, toot your horn. I was going to say, I think Robbie Rist being involved in uh, your anniversary, I think I was the one that put him in touch with everyone for that. I texted him, and uh, I was like, hey, are you doing this? He's like, no, I don't know anything about it. And I was like, "This, get in touch with these guys. And I gave him the, your, your web. Was it? Oh, oh, Robbie. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they did some other, they did some other things after that, too. What they were going to do is break it up, and they were going to do, like, another pass but this time it was just going to be the turtle guys okay right. then it was going to be it was going to be the guys that voiced the turtles but didn't weren't in the costumes you know they were trying to see how much they could get out of this but it follow through wasn't really there but i'll tell you what we it's a lesson learned for you and for anybody who's listening to this if you're going to do something like this brian henson gave us our best note months before he told Kim, because Kim has a real good relationship, the nicest guy in the world. And he told Kim, if you're going to do this, go big. Yeah. And we didn't go big enough. We, but in, in fairness to us, I'm, I'm, that's not an excuse, but COVID certainly reshuffled the deck sure. on the whole thing. But if you're going to go, if you're going to do this, this stuff, you really got to go big, you know, and I, that means go to I told Kim, we need to go to CAA. As much as I hate him and I used to be at that agency, we need a big player behind us. <laughs> you know, hit the pause button big time. <laughs> um, I think that, um, that, you know, with everything going virtual, we had a lot of uh, good conversations, a lot of fun, but no, obviously, in-person things, except for we did a Fathom event um, on, back in early November where uh, you know, Warner Brothers had re-digitized the picture, and it looked fantastic, so we got to see it on the big screen again. But Fathom, really, I mean, they were hamstrung. The, the Regal Cinemas had closed, so all that was open was the AMCs, um, and they didn't really promote the event like we had originally intended, but it was fun to see it on the big screen, and I had the, the, uh, the distinct pleasure of being able to host Todd Langan here in Orlando, uh, with the screenings that we did here because Todd had moved here like the week after COVID started. So he couldn't go out either. And, um, and it was great to catch up with him after 30 years. So, and just remind us Todd's connection to the, the turtles universe. Well, Todd was the co-writer with Bobby. Right. Okay. And, and, um, and also wrote the second picture, uh, on his own. Um, Todd was brought in by Steve Barron, um, sort of at the last minute to kind of punch things up and and um, and um, provide a little bit more structure. Bobby is unbelievable with characters and dialogue and and uh, all of that, but I think that S Steve was storyboarding the movie and felt like he needed to have um, the story beats a little bit more consolidated, if you will. Mm -hmm. So he brought Todd in to write to do that pass on the script. And, um, Todd had like, you know, a short period of time to write, but, um, he did. And then, and then, um, th so that was, it was fun to catch up with him because he had stories that I'd never heard before. 
we'll have to we'll have to get in touch with Todd. That sounds interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a yeah. He has been I I have never been able to get him to come out of his shell um, <laughs> until he came down to these screenings in Disney. And you know, at first he was real like, uh, no, I don't want to do that and all that. But then the fans started asking him questions. We only had like twenty five people because the the theater capacity was only fifty, mm-hmm. but about 25 people hung around and asked him questions and all that. He got right into it. That's awesome. Because here's what happened. They did a national screening. I don't know if you know this, of Ninja Turtles. Yep. In November 5, 6 or something. I'm in Phoenix. There was It was in nine AMC theaters here, three in Tucson. I picked three of them, talked to the managers. I had to go through all this approval through, um, uh, not Warner Brothers, but through Tom Lucas and the guys, Fathom Events, who actually put this on, had to get their approval because they didn't want us to go to these for some reason. And the, and the theater owners, uh, theater managers wanted us there. So I went to three of them, okay? I talked to these managers and, oh, no, they need, I'm sorry, the managers needed approval from AMC. Gotcha. They had to wait for the big boss. Well, AMC said no originally. Then they came back and said, yeah, okay, because Kim got that ball going in Florida at his AMC. Anyway, so... Kim had a better turnout, but I went on a Friday night. I go in. I remember COVID's going on, but I'm in Arizona, so we're pretty open. Like, I don't know where you are. You Are you Florida? I'm in New York City. Oh, okay. You're, you're closed. But we're open in Arizona, yeah. comparatively speaking, and Florida. <laughs> and even the theaters are open, but we go in. I go that night, and there's no one there. I mean, I'm waiting for people to – listen, I'm waiting for people to show up, but I'm hearing the theater in the next door in the multiplex. So I walk in to see if there's anybody in there. There's this full on movie playing. There's not one human being in the theater. And I go, this is not good. I had three people show up for my, for the screening. That was it. Having done stand up comedy and still do a little bit back in my comedy store days. If you were in the doghouse with uh, Mitzi Shore back in the day, but I started there when it first opened in 72 April of 72 was the opening doors at, uh, at uh, Sammy Shore and Rudy DeLuca opened up the comedy store, not Mitzi. When she died, she gets the credit for the comedy store, and we're going, that's bullshit. She did not start the comedy. She got it in a divorce settlement. Right. But she, anyway, Mitzi was a good guy. But if you were in her doghouse, she'd go, okay, Bobby, you're on at 1.30 Tuesday morning. 1.30 Tuesday morning. That's five drunks. They're hey, you're really cute. And I'm over, I said, excuse me, darling, I'm over here to your right just a little bit. <laughs> but this is the truth, Scotty. Uh, and people tell you this, five, an audience of five can play like 500, believe it or not, and vice versa. You can have 500 people and 495 of them are sitting on their hands. You're wow. getting nothing, okay? You're just, you're just purging on, just kind of get through your set. So when I go that night, I was just, these guys were really, I mean, they came with all kinds of turtle stuff, you know, and they wanted selfies and signing things and they showed, and so we did the movie. I was bumming and I get home. I go, God, I, I call, call Kim. What did you have? He said, we had about 50. I said, I had three people. Well, the managers at these theaters, they were madder than hell because they said, they've sent us no marketing materials. We have no posters. There's been no publicity done. Nobody knew this thing was in the theaters. Wow. And I went back to the powers that be, to Warner Brothers and to 
to uh, Fatima said what happened. Well, Fatima had this gal was working with me the few days. We were back and forth. It was very tempestuous because they said, what's going on? There were three people. Listen, we worked really long and hard and D to D to D and the theater owners and this and that. And I said, the only publicity they got was I got on the local morning, Fox morning show here on Tuesday morning. Killed it, if I say myself. They wanted, they called me on the phone two minutes later and said, we want you back on the show again. And I said, send a contract. Yeah. And uh, they were all Turtle fans. You know, they were adults that had been, you know, that swing plane like you, you know. And uh, that was really the only publicity got. So I go Saturday, I took my wife, my four grandchildren, and there was five people showed up besides them. So I felt it was a private screening for my grandkids. And then I, but these, again, five cool fans answered questions. And then I started getting all choked up. And I said, this is my wife and my four grandkids. And I said, um, and I started getting tears. I said, their dad and their uncle came to the screening of this movie 30 years ago. And they were with MC Hammer. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm starting to cry again. And I said, never in my, I've got goosebumps. And my son was 14. The other one was 17. I said, never did I think I'd be in Phoenix, in a theater with grandkids watching this movie 30 years. Would this movie even be of interest 30 years later? Right. Hey. And my kid, I'll, I'll, but listen, my, those four kids never took their eyes off the screen. They were absolutely blown away. And they're twins. So you got a 13-year-old, two eight-year-old twins, and a four-year-old girl. Wow. And they got done. They go, Pop, Pop, that's the bestest movie I've ever seen. And I'm going, how much did daddy pay you to say that? No, they loved it. Yeah, the one thing about the Turtles fan community is you can always count on the diehards to show up to an event. Like it's <laughs> no doubt, and they were they were quoting all these um, all these um, scenes that um, that hadn't been in the movie, but that somehow or another, you know, in the in the in the universe or whatever the Turtleverse, um, people knew that there were some scenes that were unshot and all that. And so Todd had Todd had stories about all of that stuff. It was great. That's that's my favorite topic of conversation, which which I should mention is why I was so excited when you came out with the the script that you guys are offering right now too. that the 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 storyboard uh, custom bound script, because I was like, I need to see what all of those extra things that were like supposed to be in the film that we never saw. Like, I want to know what that stuff is. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, that and then maybe some of the other stuff that you guys are offering now through your website. Did you get a copy of the script? Did you get yours? Kim is going to send it to me. Yeah, he emailed me the other day, and and it's on the way. So I'm I'm super. So Kim Kim's the one that does. Kim designed this, and I think he did the cover. I, I thought that was cool. You yeah, know? and then they've got all the storyboards in them. Yeah, sure. The, I mean, I think that the that that script, you know, uh, because there was so much action in the picture, um, Steve Barron felt like he needed to storyboard almost the entire picture. So, um, beginning as soon as he got to Wilmington, North Carolina, he got a storyboard artist and they started collaborating. And, um, you know, every day when you're shooting on a, on a soundstage, you usually put the storyboards up on the wall. So everybody in on the crew can see what's going to happen today. Right. It's a very helpful thing. So at the end of that picture, um, the, I think the production coordinator gathered up all those storyboards and assembled them into the, the script order and then, and then um, you know, photocopied them onto facing pages. So there, I'm going to guess that there are 
six scenes that were not included in the final movie, maybe seven that are in that script um, that you'll see. And some of them are boarded and some of them are not. Some of them are just dialogue scenes. But I think what you'll find is that there's, yeah, particularly the, the final scene in the movie was never shot. Um, it was written and uh, it's an homage to, um, to Kevin and Peter for sure. Uh, they they actually I think it was shot because I think that's one of the ones that you can actually find footage. It doesn't have any of the effects on it. It doesn't have any of the real voices, but you can see the shot when they're in the the um the, uh, the production office. Yeah, you know I've I've never seen it. So um, there we we went looking for it recently um, when we when we did the the Fathom events. They wanted to use the original cut negative um, of the film. Uh, to to master from so we went to look in the libraries and the vaults where all the elements were kept and we couldn't find any of those cut oh, scenes those deleted scenes so yeah someone's got them somewhere I'm actually trying to pull it up on YouTube for you yeah it's a right real dirty now. transfer too it's the one bad that's on here YouTube. it is I know that Steve Barron had a, had a, a a group of and I don't know if they did a, just a, a a rough print of of those scenes. You know, typically when you're editing on film, um, you only you only print what you actually need. What you when you roll it through the movie old, and now nobody edits in film, so it's it's like a lost art. But back in the day, um, so those scenes that were cut out of the movie were hanging in a in a bin, yeah. um, and uh, I, I know they got assembled at one point, uh, but probably just from a rough a rough um, a rough. Uh, print of it so i don't know if it was ever actually color corrected and mastered properly i doubt it, that it, it doesn't look like it is because none of the adr voices were in it and it, yeah it's a really dirty like work print kind of a kind of a look uh-huh i just sent that to your email but i wanted to show you a, a, another evidence i have you, you can't see it right here but this is a negative that i i got oh. the collector this is from the trailer this is a 35 millimeter slice from the trailer and it's actually the scene where the turtle shells are popping out of the water uh-huh oh yeah they used it in the original trailer but never again never made it into the final film and i'm just holding up the the film negative for our audio listeners well, that's, that's not a negative well it's the the print i don't know the film words adam i didn't go to film school like you did <laughs> just keep them straight adam yeah i I used to work in projection. We have so. a box of film trailers somewhere in the yeah, house. Yeah, I used to. I used to squirrel away trailers. Um, well, you I, were a projectionist, Adam. Yeah. Um. During like the very last gasp of film projection, I was a. Uh, I was a booth tech for. I'm probably the youngest person alive who knows that business. <laughs> <laughs> I would say. Um, there's only a few th- uh, houses left. You know, there were a lot of uh, drive-in theaters. Um, that still have 35 millimeter projection. Yeah, we live close to one. Um, I've been wanting to to reach out to that guy because mm-hmm. I want to get in that booth pretty yeah. badly. But yeah, what was it? Two two summers ago, we went to. Yeah, we went to yeah. see um, an old print of of the first two movies um, that they were showing. I actually have a poster for it right behind me. No kidding! Oh but, yeah, uh, I yeah. love that. Um, well, actually, you know, that's one of the things we were planning on doing to get back on topic. Um, was to do screenings of um, of the new prints. Um, well, the, just the first movie has been has been remastered. Uh, I don't know if they plan to do the second film, but to do some double features in drive-in theaters because it's about the only place where people are going to be able to go to see movies. Mm-hmm. I think. Can I ask you? 
Um, just on the topic of that new print, like for years, fans have been clamoring for like a special edition, all this like fun, you know, want the Blu-ray, all this stuff. And the answer, even, you know, Kevin Eastman has said, and other people we've talked to have always said, like, we just don't have the, 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 the original print that's clean enough to really do a proper re whatever the technical term is. What made Warner Brothers decide to go back and redigitize this? Was it just for screenings like this, or is there something else in the pipe that we don't know about? No, well, I think that they they realized that the the, the believe it or not, the DVD still sells the Blu-ray. There's been a lot of requests for it. So once they were able to digitize redigitize the master, um, they they I'm sure that they feel like any future. Um, screenings of the film will will use this and you'll you'll be able to see when you do see it you'll see there's detail that they that they were able to bring out that you know steve Barron may object to it because he liked the dark look but yeah. i think a lot of fans there there's some scenes where you, you you just see stuff you've never seen before now i don't know if they have plans to do the second movie accordingly but it wasn't nearly as dark either so right just the 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 lighting landscape is uh, definitely a lot brighter on the sequel, and we'll talk about the sequel. Um, I'm I'm kind of the opposite on that personally. Like like I'll take a brittle acetate red shifted print over <laughs> something that's been digitally remastered. Like uh, there's something about the history of an old beat up print. Yeah, a- Adam's favorite thing is a bad film transfer. Like if we're watching something <laughs> on Netflix, or I think I think at one time I had a digital copy of that movie uh, Charade that Audrey Hepburn movie. Oh, and yeah. it was the worst transfer I have ever seen. Yeah, I think it was redshifted. Yeah, one. it was real yeah. bad. Yeah. I'm, I'm a nerd for that stuff. <laughs> well, you know, I think the, the early days of piracy were when uh, people would take their eight millimeter cameras into the theaters and record what was on the screen. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that, that um, when we, when we first heard about how they were, how they were ripping off the turtles in China. It was, it was that technique that they were using. <laughs> that just seems so hard. Now, now it seems like they, whoever it is that the, is the pirate knows who the lab techs are. Oh, that must right. be Chris. That's Chris. Chris just popped in. Hey, <laughs> hey Chris. Chris Hi. generally has family to worry about. Unlike the rest of us heathens who don't, he has like kids and a wife and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So welcome. Yeah. Hi guys. Hi. Um, so I want to get back to the 30th anniversary stuff and and how you guys had to sort of shift and deal with that because, like I said, you had all this great stuff that was going on. Um, you had mentioned to us a, a documentary and a book that you guys were going to produce, and we haven't yes. seen that stuff yet. But the we did see Judith doing the the virtual cast reunions, and it was great to see some of the people that we've talked to, John Dupre and Rich Usher, and and. Michelin and and Robbie and those guys that we know from being on our show. Um, but how was it for you to actually have to like put on the brakes and do that 180 to uh, deal with the COVID situation? Well, I, I, Kim and I spent a year ago, January, is it a year ago, January or the G two years ago, January, actually, I, I put the bug in Kim's ear. I said, you know, we've got a 30th anniversary. We need to like, lay out a game plan here and, and see what, what we can do. You know, this is, this is like a, a deal in our business that for some reason, 30th anniversaries, my buddies, uh, Robert Hayes, some airplanes, one of my best friends is Zuckers and a Jim Abrams. 
did, you know, uh, naked, uh, naked gun, but they did airplane and they're, you know, 30 year anniversary, big deal. You know, now they're looking at the 40, then it becomes the 40. And then if you're around the 50, <laughs> but anyway, so I laid out a plan with Kim and that, uh, I said, we need to get to the Comic-Con, see if we can get to San Diego Comic-Con. I was living in Long Beach. I've since moved to Cave Creek, Arizona, mm -hmm. got the hell out of California. I went, I made a connection with them, with, with this lady that was, and shame on me, I'm up on her name. It was kind of the, the, the overlord of San Diego Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. And then I went down in July to the Comic-Con to meet um, her in person. And that was the first step. The whole thing was Comic-Con at this point. Okay. Uh, then, and it was the middle of the show. She actually happened to walk in this huge room because her assistant, who couldn't have been nicer, says, she's all over the place. You may not get her. And lo, uh, lo and behold, she, two minutes later, she walks in the room. Right. She takes me off to the side. We sit down. I tell her what it's all about. She said, I love it. You got to meet Abraham and, uh, Abraham and David, and they kind of really set, you know, the... the who, who and who is not going to be in and what room you're going to be in. If you're going to be in a large room, what they have to figure out what they think they're going to pull. You're going to pull as an audience. Okay. Long story short, we were in, we got set in a couple of months later. We heard from them said, yeah, we'd love to have you. We're going to decide we want to put you in uh, the big hall. All eight. Yeah. So wait, we'll do and, and Conan O'Brien, who's a friend, Conan happened to be there when I was there. And I miss it, no, because I saw him. We, we, we go together to this place up in the Redwoods in the summer, and I saw him the following Monday. And he said, he said, I thought you were coming. I said, I did. He said, well, did you look for me? And I says, you know how many freaking people are in that room, in this one room? And all I did is I'm five. I found out Friday, I'm 5'4". I used to be 5'6". I'm shrinking. They, I went to the doctor and they did my height and I said, she said, shoes off. And I went, oh, Jesus, five, four. I'll be riding, I'll be riding at Hialeah in another, in another year. Anyway, so, um, oh, yeah, then I went over to Kevin Eastman's booth. I did. Yeah, yeah. So I went over and met a really nice guy there because we wanted to give Kevin a copy of this, of the script. I left Kevin one of these in a note, you know, trying to hook up with him. But he was here and there and everywhere. Same for Conan. And then Conan, you know, I said, all I did was get hit in the face with backpacks, man. It was, bam, every time I turned around, a backpack was hitting me in the face. But Conan said, Bobby, they'll put you in the H hall. You'll pull, uh, you'll pull plenty of people to fill that hall. And I go, you think? He said, yeah. And the rest is, it, it, I, I'm going to save you time. It all became virtual. Yeah. Just because, that's the only, and, the, and the fact that they could pull that off, I thought was pretty brilliant. That took, that took a lot of work. Well, it, it obviously it was disappointing. I think that one, you know, Bobby and I both look forward to to catching up with uh, people that we hadn't, uh, in many cases, hadn't met before. Bobby hadn't met them, um, but the you know it would have been it would have been fun. But it's like there's no reason to cry over spilt milk. So maybe next year we'll be able to pull in some of these live events. And if we were, you know, we were thinking about doing the thirtieth for both movies and just you know. Last year was a loss, so I don't think anybody would would for, uh, you know blame you if you said let's celebrate again this year. You know the second movie was released pretty much in the same time frame in, in the spring quarter, so um, I think that that uh, you know maybe we'll just make up for lost time, Scott. I, I don't know. 
I think it would be a great idea. I was talking to a uh, rich usher and we, I actually had tried to contact a local like art cinema near my house in New York city here and had gotten the ball rolling with them about maybe trying to host a screening. Uh, and rich was like, I'll come and I'll rap. So I know there's <laughs> definitely interest uh, and, and engaging from what Bobby told us earlier about how you guys had basically set up this whole thing for Comic-Con. You were going to do San Diego. Right. Um, there's Is definitely interest still around. Did they make it? They made it. Okay. As far as so I that's know. That's the other hard part is finding houses that are still open. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think that one of the things we thought is that the, the drive-in theater idea is a really good idea because you could have actually have pizza parties. People could come and dress up and, and they could, they could, you know, have fun because you're distanced to begin with. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, I think that, that, um, having, um, drive-in theater pizza parties, I know there's a guy named Kyle Roberts, who did the uh, stop motion turtle trailer? I don't know if you're familiar that Nickelodeon commissioned him to do last year. It was a frame for frame duplication of what of the the short trailer from 1990. And uh, Kyle's first experience, the first time he ever saw the the film, was at a drive-in theater. So we were rapping about about how cool it would be to get um, to go back and do these these pizza parties at, at drive-ins it would be a, it would be a gas well adam and rachel actually you did that in mahoning and, yeah. and tell yeah. us a little bit about what was there this is before there was 30th anniversary talk and i know bobby and kim weren't involved but like what did they put on for that whole shindig they they do they do it up when, yeah. they, when they do special screenings like they 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 had uh, a pizza party of their own they had a guy show up dressed as raf they had a guy show up dressed as uh as casey jones they had a, a woman dressed like um April O'Neil, who was going around like interviewing people, it was it was a blast. Yeah. Um, they they did a they did a thing for uh, they did a, a Nightmare in Elm Street marathon where they built a facade of the the Nightmare House. So they they go all out. We should we should get get information crossed between them. I think I still have uh, their their contact info. Yeah, they actually in, interviewed Rachel and I. On the radio um, <laughs> broadcast right before the movie. Yeah, because the, how they do the audio, it's like a short circuit. Is that the right way to say uh, it? Short, short range, short, yeah, short range radio how. station, and you tune into it on your either your car radio or like a little radio, and that's how the audio comes through. Yeah. So I, I got I got to do I got to exist because their their radio station is in the projection booth. So I, I got to be in like two of my favorite places in one setting. <laughs> so <Yeah>. weird. <laughs> yeah, he was he was being a real nerd about the uh, the projection system. Well, yeah, and I'm just in, like, mm-hmm. They're an archive house, so they're set up on reel-to-reel. It's awesome. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Well, um, those are people who are who, who really do love film. And the, um, the um, it's the United Theater Owners of... Uh, the United Outdoor Theater Owners. It's a it's an acronym called UDITOA, um, and their annual meeting takes place. You know, they have a conference every year. There are about four hundred uh, drive-in theaters in the United States, and every year, well, at least until this year, they would have a, a convention. But the convention was at the same humble level that most of the theaters were. They held it in the in the the big ballroom of the of the Kissimmee um, Holiday Inn. Right. So it was like, um, it, it, it's fun because most of the people who own driving theaters are, are my age or older. Uh, they're not a lot of young people, uh, who own them, but they're, they, they, they do draw families still. So it's yeah, a fun yeah. thing. 
There's our retirement plan, Adam. We're going to invest in drive-in theaters. It's well, the guy who runs the, the, the Mahoning is our age. That's well, I think he's go. like a few years older than us, but yeah, he's part of he's our generation. Um, um, there you go. Yeah, Kim, let's talk about the Turtles too, because uh, unfortunately, Bobby, I don't think had a lot of to do with with the sequel. But you produced all three films, correct? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. So that's right. As we are shifting from, uh, you know, Turtles One comes out and it's like this strange version of success for this little tiny movie. It's the highest selling independent or highest grossing independent movie of all time for a number of years. How quick was the decision to move forward with the sequel and what did that process look like? You know, uh, the second uh, Ninja Turtle 2, Stick of the Use, is it's going to have its 30th anniversary in March. Correct. They did those movies back to back, which is, I mean, they didn't mess around. They, they got it out, you know, a year later. Did they have a plan so, in mind for the, the second one before they released the first one? Or did they wait and see? Well, I don't. It's a sore spot with me, uh, and I'll explain. But uh, did they have a plan? No, because Tom Gray and the powers that be thought the movie was going to be Howard the Duck and a piece of shit and was never going to. No one's going to go see it. Oh, man, you're I'm serious. Howard the Duck fans out there. <laughs> oh, I know. The, the critics panned it. Said it's the, Leonard Malton said it's the worst movie he's ever seen, and I waited for years to meet Leonard Malton. Oh, I always kind of had some Ninja Turtle thing with me. If I went to a certain event and I thought he was going to be there, I had a Ninja Turtle DVD to just go, bam! Go. <laughs> but... It's about the fans, you know, and it was about they, you know, Tom Gray. Uh, we, we, I think we talked about went over this when we first talked to you. Tom Gray running the company. He was who didn't want to do the movie. He kept turning me down every time I circled back with him about it, and he really did. He the, the week it was going to open, we were going out to lunch, and he said, "Geez, Herbs, what do you think we're going to do?" I said, "I think we're going to do twenty million. He says, "Wow, we do twenty million. You know, he, he promised me a new car, which I never got, I might add. <laughs> but he said, he said I, I think we got Howard the Duck on our hands. And I said, you have a built-in audience. Howard Duck just dropped out of the sky. But you're right. I have found out there's a lot of Howard the Duck fans. Well, it, at the box office, you, you always look at the second weekend as the critical weekend in terms of how a movie is going to perform overall. The first weekend, sometimes it's an anomaly. You get, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the rule of thumb basically is if you, if you don't, if you drop off less than 50% in the second week, um, there's a likelihood that you'll go on and, and achieve some good box office. So by the second weekend, we, we did about 75% of our first weekend. We did 25 million the first weekend, and we did another like 18, 19 million the second weekend. And that then, then they were able to predict how much money they were going to earn, um, more or less. But that was a direct result, I think, in some ways of the fact that theaters didn't have nearly as many screens back then. In 1990, the, the houses might, like the Disney AMC theaters that we screened in down here in Orlando, had, I think there were nine, maybe 10 screens. Now they have 28 screens, right? So when a movie was playing, there was only one print and only one showing in, at a time, right? Whereas now you can, they can fill it up with, with um, you know, Star Wars uh, screens, as many as they want. Sure. But back then, so we had this campaign going on with, uh, with Pretty Woman, which opened the week before us. And 
there was this advertising campaign primarily in Los Angeles back and forth where we were encouraging people who couldn't get into the turtles to go see pretty woman and vice <laughs> versa. And, but it was a big send up because Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was running Disney at the time had wanted to buy turtles at first. He didn't want to, and then he did want to. And then, so um, it, it was, it was a really fun little campaign that went on for about, I don't know, eight or 10 weeks. So, um, <laughs> but it was by the second weekend um, we hadn't dropped off much. So Tom, uh, made the determination, Tom Gray at Golden Harvest, that he was going to green light the second picture. And the the second movie is sort of famous for being a little bit more uh, toned down. The violence is toned down. The, like we already mentioned, like it's a brighter film. It's a little bit more cartoony. Yeah. How did that sort of tonal shift uh, happen? Who was involved with that? Was that? Were you involved with that discussion at all? Or a little bit. Well, here's you know, Todd has a really good. Um, perspective of it because in the first film when bobby finished his draft and then todd did the the uh, polish or the rewrite whatever you want to call it um that that basically you when you finish that draft uh it's it's on white pages and then any changes after that after you lock the script are are done on what are known as colored pages so you you change from blue to pink to yellow to you know fuchsia whatever whatever there's like 10 different uh changes you can make and our that first picture was all white pages. Uh, Steve didn't change anything. He dropped wow. a few things, and it, just because of uh, time. But he didn't. He it literally didn't change a thing. They wow. did a little, you know, on the on the fly. There were some changes in dialogue and all that because the actors wanted to mix it up. But for all intents and purposes, that that final draft was the final cut, right? Or the final the, what finally got shot. The second picture was done, but well, now the studio execs at New Line are listening to the the mothers and fathers of uh, the parents who want less violence in movies from Washington D.C. because we got creamed on that too much violence, right? Because if you want that PG rating, then you know you gotta you gotta bend over. Sure. So that uh, the second picture was much more like a committee and Todd, you know, Todd has a great story about that because he said, you know, like the first time it was just he and Steve, they, they didn't really, there was, there was nobody else involved in the process. You know, yeah. Kevin and Peter would weigh in occasionally and all that. But in the second picture, it was new line golden harvest had had more say there was, there were uh, more product placement. Everybody had a say in it. Now the toy company wanted to make sure that they didn't, cross the line with violence and so forth. And actually, you know, the truth is that Jim Henson preferred not having as much violence as well. Although, um, you know, the Henson family, and that may have been a tribute because he passed away after the first picture. Right. right. So um, the creature shop was a uh, Jim was sensitive to this, to the, um, to the uh, idea that we would scale back the violence as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I, so it was kind of a, more of a committee thing that made that happen. Now, when the first film was made, there was like the cartoon wasn't really uh, widely known or viewed. Were people looking at the success of the animated show and going like, "Oh, this is what we're supposed to do"? Would like, did that have an influence too? Well, I think it probably did. You know, by that time, the the, the kids comic had come out. The 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 kids the scaled down version of the of the um, the. Um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures. Yeah, the Archie books. Right. But, yeah, and I think that the, 
you know, even even with when they when they picked up the the um, animated series, you know, those first five episodes that Morikami and Wolf did were really a promotion for the toy. That's what that's what it was. Those five episodes, which aired reruns for, I think, the next nine months, were really to promote the toy and the release of the toy. And um, then when that when that got picked up and they needed more content, then they started to soften the stories and make them more more palatable for y- young people, I guess. So, sure. but Steve was able to walk that fine line with the uh, with the story and and keep you know in his mind he kept he kept uh, an honest version of the of the original comics uh, in in the in the first film. I think. You know, Michael Pressman in number two was uh, was uh, again he was he was working with a committee rather than a rather than a, a, a single group of people. So, a much yeah. different dynamic. I, I wanted to ask about him because Steve, when we talked to Steve, we had the pleasure of talking to Steve, and it was great to hear. Like he had this very concrete vision of what he wanted to do and how he wanted the film to look, and we have not yet been able to get in touch with uh, Mr. Pressman to talk to him. So I was just wondering, maybe roundabout, what were the discussions with the director? Uh, what was his perspective on what he was doing? You, I mean, you mentioned it's like he's working by committee, so it's got to be hard on him. But did he come in with you know as clear a vision? Did he was he familiar with the material? Oh, I think yeah, he was, um, and and he was stoked. Don't get he was stoked, and and I think you know being able to um, work with Pat Johnson, who was the choreographer who did all the fighting, and with the Creature Shop, um, it, that would those would have been career highlights for for Michael. Um, he was he was into it. I think it was just a matter of of um, of um, you know we had I I think that maybe even theaters had complained about the darkness of the first print of the first picture. Um, and that, that may be, you know, because some of the fans did, but the, you know, you can't please everybody. So, um, but yeah, Michael was, um, but you know, he's a very calm man and very, very easygoing, very, you know, not, not given to, to outrage. So he, he, he was similar to Steve in that regard. Steve was very, very calm and, and uh, almost unflappable in the midst of what would have thrown a lot of directors into, into, you know, total chaos in the, in the first picture, because we really did have a lot of meltdowns and and Mm. difficult, difficult, um, you know, technology, technology issues on the first one. Other men would have been flapped. And Steve seemed, seemed like the kind of guy who was, who would probably be a little more, um, prone to push back at some of those those market decisions. Oh where... yeah, he would have. He would have been. It, no, he, he. It wouldn't have been a happy mix. Yeah, where um, I, I think they found someone who is a little more willing to play ball, a little more kind of used to that environment of having that the corporate input. Yes, absolutely. I think Pressman was was much more the diplomat. Steve Steve did have a very clear vision and and I think that that vision was born of you know a close relationship that he had with Mark and and, uh, and or with Kevin and Peter rather um, whereas I don't know that that uh, Mike Pressman had the same kind of rapport with uh, those guys. Yeah, I wanted to, it brings me to my next question nicely uh, you guys had a lot of these technical issues on one radio frequencies getting in the way of, of the, the animatronics and all this other stuff. What did you learn 
that helped you out on Turtles 2? Was it an easier process? Did you guys feel like you were kind of like, ah, we know how to do this now? Well, I, I think that's always true when you get to do things again. Uh, first, the you know the the air conditioning and heating systems or the cooling systems and the stages were were much better the second time around. That 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 was a huge factor in the first picture because they were th- those stages were so hot and um, they you know you had to keep the big elephant doors open in order to keep them keep air circulating around in them and that like uh, i don't know if you, if you if steve told you the story about the flies when they were shooting the the, the miniatures um, they had this we had this little set set up where th- th- we were shooting the miniatures of the turtles you know crawling around in the li- little yeah. plate with, and um, there was a the, the the set was a whole bunch of white cards set up in a little a little semicircle with light bouncing off of them and then flashing back on that scene and um, that though that you do that a lot in, in when you're doing s- uh, certain close-ups and whatnot well with the with the doors open th- that way it attracts a lot of flies those lights attracted like thousands and thousands of flies it was there were times when when it became just laughable <laughs> Wow. Gross. Uh, who, who's whose idea whose idea was vanilla ice? Was was that a committee decision? <laughs> I think it was Ice's idea. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> you know, I think he was a fan, and he probably reached out. I, you know, I I honestly don't know. I think that um, um, that those were those were decisions that got made. Um, it could have been a 20th Century Fox thing even though new line was releasing the pictures the second picture um in the u.s 20th century fox had the picture in foreign uh, you know you know the story about how 20th century fox was originally supposed to release the movie yeah they would before before new line came on board 20th century fox was lined up to do it because that's where tom gray had worked uh, for many years in the foreign sales side of, of 20th. And um, Leonard Goldberg was the chairman of the studio and had said, yes, I'll make the turtle film. I'll, I'll dis- we'll distribute it. And then Leonard Goldberg got replaced by Ger- Barry Diller right before, this is like in May, we shoot in, in uh, July of the first film. So May of 89, we get a call and says, uh, we're not going to release that picture. We're not, you know, we, we don't want to, we, we're not involved. Um, and, you know, it's not untypical of studios when they change management to wipe the slate. Well, we got wiped off the slate at 20th. And that's why New Line came back and, and actually ended up releasing the picture. But when they saw the results of the first one, they went, well, we made a mistake. So we'll go ahead and buy the foreign rights for two and three in advance. And that's how the, the second film got financed, which all, all entirely by a foreign sales uh, presale. So there was, it, nice. there was again, uh, not a, not a, um, um, it wasn't as difficult to process. We had a much bigger budget on the second picture as well. So, you know, nearly, nearly twice the budget, um, that we had. So, um, Kim, you're, oh, there you are. I was going to say your video went away for a second. I was hoping your phone wasn't dying or something. Some hack was trying to call me. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I guess we are we are just in the infancy of recording our sort of Turtles 3 episodes. We literally started our first few episodes, 
And uh, the, the the popular consensus in fan circles is that the third film is maybe a step down from the first two. You're being very nice right now, yeah, Scott. Yeah, you're well, being I'm very talking diplomatic. To the producer of the film. <laughs> I have a thesis that it's actually a better film than a lot of people give it credit for because it's much closer to what Kevin and Peter would have envisioned for their characters. So we're going to be debating this uh, as, as our series. That's, a, that's an interesting debate. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering, like, after... So one comes out, two comes out, and two does great. Did you guys... What was the reaction to two right after it came out? Was it bigger than one? Did you... Were you getting backlash from people because it was, you know, less violent? You know, what was... At the time, what was the reaction? I think it was, um, you know, generally the... You know, I think it's what everybody expected it to do. Not quite perform the, the way the first one had. The first one had a kind of a, uh, a more indie feel, if you will, a more you know, edgy sort of thing. The second one was shot on 35 as opposed to 16. So it had, it had a different look and, and more polished look and feel. Um, and the, the fact that we toned down the violence was, I think that's a concession to the marketplace yeah. as much as anything, you know. Um, but yeah, I think everybody was stoked that the, I mean, certainly Gary and I were stoked that the, that the film had performed the way it did. It did almost 90 million at the box office. Yeah. So um, even though it didn't uh, perform the way the first one had, and it was, and it was still a fun movie. It was not like, um, it, and you know, I think Todd was, was, um, into it and and had a despite the fact that he had to he had to write by committee right. um he had a he had a pretty good take on it and i think michael pressman's um you know approach to the to the material was um would perhaps not as deep and dark as steve but i think he he, he was into it and and uh, i think he did a, a very admirable job i think the the coverage was well, you know, when you have 35, it's it's a little bit more. You see more. There's more. There's more um, in the in the picture frame. So, right. um, I don't know if I idea. knew uh, that the first one was shot on 16. That's that's a fun, interesting detail for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. Knew. Yeah, well, it was. You know, that's that's one of the reasons why we were able to keep the budget down the way it was. We knew that the miniature scenes were shot on eight. That's about the only thing I think we uh, knew for certain mm-hmm. that Steve told us. Um, just a quick aside I had. Do you know why uh, Elias was not in this, the second film? Was that just was there not a part written for him? Was there a scheduling issue? Yeah, I think it was. No, I don't think it was scheduling. I think it was more, you know, the same thing that happened with with uh, Judith, um, where th- there there was a there was a contract people had you know signed on to do, and when the first one did the the business it did everybody felt like, well, maybe we should go back and renegotiate. Well, fortunately, Gary and I had, because we, we had the original option, our contract was the first one done. But the, um, I think Bobby will describe um, Raymond Chow as having very short arms. He didn't want to share anything with anybody. So, you know, that was part of the issue was, was uh, uh, Judith felt like, well, you know, she was part of the success of the picture, probably could have gone in and renegotiated, but there was no renegotiating. And that mm. was, so if there was, if there, if somebody wanted to renegotiate, it was like, oh, no. Oh. And I honestly don't know of why the, why his character was not, didn't appear in the second picture and we brought him back in the third. Um, I, it may have been a, con- a contractual thing at the time. 
Um, that's well, my best guess. And I and I was going to use it to segue into the third film. So a lot of lot of changes uh, behind the scenes in the third film. Most notably would be that we we stop using the Henson Creature Shop. Yeah, and we go to was it All Effects? All Effects Inc. Yeah, and and that was that was a budgetary thing. I think it was also the Creature Shop. Um, maybe I don't I don't know I don't know exactly what the dynamic was. It was mostly a budgetary issue at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, all Effects. You know, they they claim to have some brand new technology and more interesting stuff and this and that. In fact, I don't know that they could have done anything more innovative than what uh, the Henson, what the Creature Shop had done. Yeah. But I think it was mostly a budgetary issue. Yeah, and had- the fact that the Creature Shop had gotten really busy, um, Henson okay. and uh, the whole company was was super busy, and um, so they had to charge more in order to in order to do that and. And um, there was a fixed budget for the for the costumes. So, um, so the the third film, we do switch uh, suit companies, but we also the weapons come back in the third one. We're allowed to be a little bit more violent again. Yeah. Uh huh. How? And it's also there's this is the one between two and three. There was a longer gap of time. Like one comes out in ninety, two comes out in ninety one. It's not until ninety three. In my brain, I remember it feeling like five years between yeah. those movies when I was a kid. Yeah, it was actually a, a, a an entire year. And we we um, left North Carolina and went to Oregon. That movie was yeah. always shot all in Oregon. Right. Oh, okay. And um, and um, that was that was part, you know part of the thing. The the reason why we stayed in in um, on the East Coast. Uh, was primarily because of the creature shop. Uh, Jim Henson, on the first picture, just didn't want to go to China to, to shoot. It was just that it was not, you know, he was traveling between New York, London, and Orlando because uh, Disney had licensed his Muppet characters for the Disney MGM Studios. So he was, that was his, his um, primary travel between London, New York, and, and Orlando. So Wilmington was an okay stop along that way. Um, uh, China wouldn't have worked. That's where Golden Harvest really wanted to shoot the first picture. So we shot first, the first two pictures in, in North Carolina. And then when it came time to do the third, um, and the, you know, with the, the box office wasn't quite what the, the uh, on the second one wasn't quite what the first was. So, they decided to wait, and then and that's where, um, and and see how the foreign markets sold through and so forth. So it took another year before we made the deal for number three. Uh, it didn't get green lit for you know where we were literally two weeks into the first pictures release when we got a pickup for the second one. This the the third picture took over a year to get a pickup. Mm. Was was there ever talk of a four? At that point, where was anyone looking that far ahead? No, uh, Gary and I had licensed the first three pictures. Uh, we licensed the, the the rights for three pictures, and when the third picture was done, um, we went to Kevin and Peter and said, "We'd like to license. We'd like to option the the uh, rights for another three pictures." Mm-hmm. Golden Harvest was definitely sitting on hold, as was New Line, because the third picture only did $53 million. And there was a reason for that. I don't think the promotion was nearly as good. I, the movie wasn't, wasn't as good. You may have a different opinion, Scott, but it didn't, it didn't fulfill the, the fans' needs the way the I first think, two had. I think I'm in the minority, but... 
<laughs> also, that first wave of fans was starting, I think, to kind of grow out of it by then. Yeah. Well, you're right. And, um, um, you know, but the, the first wave of fans was an actually, actually interesting uh, demographic because we had the, the reason why the first picture did so well were a number of things. There was a Ralston Purina two-for-one ticket coupon on the back of a turtle cereal box, right, that got a lot of kids to come to the movie two times. And then there was also... Um, a big push for the late night screenings for the for the college kids who were comic book collectors to come and and see the movie late night. So it was really performing on the midnight shows very unexpectedly because these the the college kids the comic book fans were coming to the late night screenings. Mm-hmm. So it was doing it, it had this really weird earnings. Um, model that had uh, was very unusual for a picture like this well yeah you hit two demographics at once that's interesting exactly and then so you know and i think that the um the true fans they loved the first picture because it was so consistent with the with the comics uh and you know it may be that the third one did uh take off on the on the the um the fantasy uh, aspects of of uh what Mirage was trying to do. I don't know. Uh, Scott, you, 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 you might be better <laughs> suited to answer that question than I am. This is the crux of my argument this year. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm well prepared to shut it down every time, Scott. <laughs> Sorry. No, no offense to you, Kim. It's just, I do. I don't have rose colored glasses for that movie. Mm-mm. Um, yeah. Hey, did you, I have to, and again, this just popped in my head. Did you have anything to do with the concert tour, the coming out of the shells tour? No, um, that spun off. I think that um, that um, by the time the time uh, the first film had done so well, um, Mark's Mark Friedman at Surge Licensing was. I mean, he was hitting on all cylinders. I think he had like seven hundred different licenses. So <laughs> it was really most of that stuff happened because of him. He was an amazing hustling kind of guy, um, and he had so much connectivity to every aspect of the entertainment world uh, by the time the, tur- the first turtle, because it was such a phenomena that everybody wanted a piece of it. So, um, no, I think one of the things that did happen though, is I was, I, before I started the turtles, I was producing the Mickey mouse club down at Disney MGM studios in Orlando. And, um, and I, I decided to, to stay, to keep my offices there after the, uh, we went up to North Carolina and came back um, I, I kept an office at MGM Studios, and um, Katzenberg called me one day and said, "Do you think you could you could get the turtles?" Because, like I said, you know, at one point he had turned the picture down originally when I very first pitched it to him, and then whenever I saw him, he would ask me about the turtles and go, "It'll never work. It'll never work." And then when it did work, he was uh, he was complimentary, and and basically they licensed. For MGM Studios, they licensed the rights to the live-action turtles in the theme park, um, and I think they were there for like six or seven years. So um, that part of that live tour, yeah, I had a modicum of responsibility for, but uh, not the not the thing that went to Radio City Music Hall and stuff. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, somewhere there's a picture of me with the MGM giant turtle in a suit guy. Same. Um, yeah, I remember that too. So let's bring it back to present day. What does what does turtles look like in your life 
What does it look like in your life today? Like, what what do you have your fingers in at this moment? Well, you know, well, we have been talking about the documentary and the um, and a, a, a tell-all book. Um, we've got the outline for the book. I would say that it's about a third of the chapters have been written that Bobby and I can write. Um, we've got uh, for the documentary. I think they're probably. 40 or 50 interviews that we want to do um, that because of COVID, we just got shut down. It was yeah. just, and um, our, our goal would be to go back to um, either uh, Warner brothers uh, and HBO max, because they have the first three films that are, that are on their, on their service now. And, um, and run up past them. There's um you know, I, I'm working with a guy um, over in Cocoa Beach who was partners with Gary Proper before he passed away. And uh, this guy, Craig Harriman, is, is just on fire for the Turtles. He's always been a, a big Turtle fan. And um, we've been talking about all, all sorts of things. Um, part of it is, is kind of doing a tour with the movies, going out and, and maybe bringing Vanilla Ice out. Certainly Richard uh, Usher um, and others to these drive-in theater screenings, which would be a lot of fun. Um, and if we can get that traction, then maybe we can actually do some interviews out on the road with people and fans and stuff. Cause the documentary would basically be a tell all about the, about the book. And it may now be that we'd have to do both movies or even all three. Um, uh, if Warner brothers hasn't really weighed in, it's been tough to getting through to, uh, the, the folks at Warner brothers, because they, you know, with their launch, they had a, they had their hands full. Yeah. So well, they if, you need, made, you need, if you need any fan side interviews, uh, we know four people who would be interested in that. Uh, I love that. A lot of we'll all. start with Rachel. Okay. <laughs> we have, we have several audio interviews that I'm happy to forward you. If you want to glean those for information. Cool. With, uh, with people. I know I've talked to rich, rich and I are in, in, in pretty frequent conversation. He's always down to, you know, do whatever and bring out turtles and hype up people. He's awesome. He's a real good guy. Um, yeah. So we're really excited to see, to see what is, is coming. I know we were all really looking forward to 30th anniversary stuff. I know at one point Bobby had reached out and asked us to introduce you guys for San Diego. Uh-huh. And then that kind of got flipped around. Right. It went to a uh, turtle den who those guys are awesome or he's awesome, whatever it is. He has way more followers than us. So that's okay. <laughs> Um, but I know I was looking forward we understand. to, yeah. I was specifically looking forward to that whole thing coming to New York comic con. So I'd actually get to meet you guys in person and, and say hi. So I'm hoping fingers crossed that you guys get out on the road when things calm down and get healthy and, uh, we get to, we get to say hi to some people. It'd be uh, great. You guys have a website and a store. I do want to just plug that real quick. It's tmntmovie1990.com, and you have a couple of cool things for sale up there. We mentioned the script. There's a signed poster that you can get on there. Right. T-shirts. Bobby was kind enough to to send me some previews of some other items that might be going up, jacket and uh, golf head cover, things of that nature. Yeah, I've actually I'm I'm talking to a uh, to a lady right now about those jackets. You know the 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 leather jackets are um, they were embroidered. We had a, a a great artist who who did this rendering, and um, um, so I think we can get those recreated, which would be very cool. Um, and they could be jean jackets or leather jackets. You know, either one. Um, the um, and then the. Um, he does. Bobby is a big golfer. He lo- and it's funny because he's a little guy. You know, he's smaller than me, <laughs> but he 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 loves to get out and whack the ball around. And um, he everywhere he goes, he's had these these 
uh, turtle head covers for a while. Everybody says, oh, I want those. So <laughs> he's, he's got it on his head that that's what we'll do. But I've... really the, the, um, the idea is we're going we're gonna to do some more YouTube um, channel stuff. I think that um, the idea is that perhaps what we'll do is start gathering some of these interviews with, um, with folks from one and two, and we'll just populate that on the YouTube channel along with other stuff, and then maybe that becomes a, um, the, the documentary. There's a, uh, my partner, Craig uh, Harriman, who runs this company over in Cocoa Beach, wants to do a Wu-Tang Gang sort of recreation of what the, what the story was, where we, you know, I don't know if you've seen that thing on Netflix, that Wu-Tang. I, I've heard. I have not seen it yet. <laughs> so what they do basically is they recreate the beginnings of the Wu-Tang. Gotcha. Right. Rather than rather than talk about it, they actually recreate some of the some of the scenes. So, um, you know, Craig's ideas. You know, I thought that it would be fun to see the dynamic between um, Steve Barron and and um, Brian Henson because it was really their friendship um, and their understanding of Steve and, and or of um, of um, Peter and Kevin. And where, where their heads were, that that gave the the movie the look that it had ultimately. Um, um, Disney Plus has done this thing called Gallery, where they gather the creative forces behind the the Mandalorian. And I, I've, if you haven't seen it, watch that because that would be a great forum to like a roundtable with like he's got directors, then he's got the art department, then he's got the writers, and it's kind of all of them talking to each other about how they put this show together. Um, yeah, I there's a, definitely an audience for that kind of thing. There are so many fans of these, you know, specifically the first two Turtles films, but that whole that live action franchise that I think are, you know, we're all this age and we're all craving sort of the nostalgic uh, uh, like plug back into our youth. We want to see, you know, elements of that brought back. I'd love to see a new movie with some live action suits. We'll see if that ever happens. Yeah. But uh, well, there's definitely that's a definitely on the you know part of the thing that w- that we've been talking to um, about is trying to do a, a live action with uh, new costumes with new technology. But um, dropping name. Oops, I'm dropping a name. Mel Brooks. <laughs> so let me pick it up. So Uncle Melvin loves the turtles, and and for another show, I'll give you my whole. Uh, introduction to mel and dina to don he be, he's a fan and we become I think friends and it was last time you told us the let you the whole the big spiel about mel last yeah, okay time. good so yeah do that i'm old now so t- this reminds me bobby you've been over this but his point about it's time now for teenage mutant ninja grandfather titles yes. and then saturday night live does a thing what a, a few months ago about middle-aged turtles and i got a hold of mel and said they've stole our idea <laughs> you know <laughs> But it's but what you're saying is true. So let them. Let's have a wedding. Let's let's get a babe in there. You know, and, and I mean, there's just a lot of possibilities. But I still think we can do a live action. Just go back and do it like we did with, uh, with with the first three or four. Just do it that way. Animated is like people come to me and go animated. Well, I can see that on TV any day. I want to see them in the costumes. Well, and things. So believe me. Um, the Henson Company did the the Dark Crystal uh, continuation or or whatever it is or on Netflix. They took that that Dark Crystal movie and they've made a series out of it. And it's puppets and it's practical and they meld it with a little bit of CGI. So like it's it's 
feasible. There's clearly Netflix has a budget for this kind of thing. Uh, there's an appetite for yeah, like. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Brian Henson and Kim will tell you. But Brian very much would be involved in it. We've had the conversation. He's had it more of a come, but we've had a conversation about it. Now, what we want to do, and when Kim comes on, you can ha just tell him that we touched a little on the documentary, is to do it on HBO Max because this thing's got is right now it's 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 got its feet in, in Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. That's where our statements and our money and stuff comes from. And so Warner Brothers has their hand on the up to a certain point. Oh. I'm, I'm talking about uh, if, if we were to do a documentary, it's going to be about our era, our, our time. Follow me. It's not going to be about the Michael Bay time. Exactly what the story was. We'll leave that. We'll put a pin in that for a moment. But imagine uh, a truly immersive version of the film where you could um, – you know, because this is the coming technology. We're going to see. We're going to see using AR glasses and VR glasses. Oh, um, nice! A whole new way of experiencing media in the next two or three years. You know, uh, next year Google re will release their glasses 2.0. Oculus has, or Facebook, I should say, signed a deal with Ray-Ban, and they've got a new glass coming out. That's it's really going to be spectacular. I mean, you, you, and so right now the studios are just starting to gear up for this kind of content where you're literally be walk, be able to walk into the movie and, wow. and experience it in ways that you never have before. That's wild. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it sort of gamifies the, the, the movie, uh, in, in, but because, you know, things are being shot in, in such high definition now, um, you, you know, the red camera can shoot up to 8k. Um, you can't broadcast, you can't, there's no projectors. Well, maybe there are a few that, that project 8k, but for the most part, um, you know, but what you, what you'll see is shooting in 360 and, um, in this immersive stuff. And you mentioned the Mandalorian think about, you know, the, are you familiar with how the Mandalorian is shot? Yeah. yeah like the, the, the volume, Favreau's the volume. been doing all kinds of stuff with shooting in, in VR. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, who knows? I think that there's some opportunities along those lines that would be really cool. Um, yeah. you know, um, I think it's true that most of the big superhero pictures, uh, Superman, Batman, whatever, um, have all spun off, you know, sort of like if you look at the movie, the Joker, uh, from last year, you know, it was, it's a character from Batman, but it's nothing like the Batman shows. I mean, you know, and there's ways you could do material like that. I know that uh, Kevin has been working on the last Ronin for some time, you know, and, and who knows, maybe that, maybe that catches on and does something. Yeah. It is a good, it, it broke the collector market for like a, a full day when that first issue <laughs> dropped. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that there's some, there's some opportunities to do, uh, live action is sort of, I think it's just a matter of um, Paramount because it's a splits right deal, you know, P Warner still has the first three pictures and then Paramount basic Paramount Nickelodeon uh, Viacom own the rights to the, to the, the new stuff. And therefore, and they, you know, they, they basically license NECA, the, the license for the first film. So all merchandise and licensing goes through Paramount as well. So, it's likely that that would be the place where it would happen. They, they're the ones who released the last game. And my guess is the gaming industry will continue to flourish 
and drive the need for new content. That's certainly the case with... I'm, um, I'm certainly ready for a new game of Turtles. Yeah, wouldn't it be It has great? been a while. It's been a minute. I mean, there was one that came out, I want to say, a couple years ago that wasn't bad, but it made me want more. <laughs> right. The last well, one I, I can remember that, is like some mobile games. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. You know, the the, the truth is that um, this, this volume um, stage that they shot the Mandalorian on using the Unreal Engine... Um, can can do some magical stuff. It's it's amazing, amazing the kind of uh, material you can get out of it. So um, I think we'll see more and more consolidation, or or what, however you want to phrase it, where gaming becomes the movie, the movie becomes the game. Well, I'm I'm excited for it. I'm I'm anything with the turtles on it. I'm going to pay money to go see. So. I'm looking forward to any and all, especially if you guys are involved. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, um, the the opportunity in virtual reality is to do things that that you simply can't do in in um, in um, in two D. So, yeah. you know, the um, and with the Oculus, I don't know if you guys have been in the Oculus Two headset where it tracks your hands. So you don't even need the, the wands anymore. It actually just takes a vision of your hands. The, the headset has four cameras in it. So it, it recognizes where your hands are and your hands become, they could become the baton of an orchestra uh, to lead an orchestra. They can be, they can hold guns. Um, they can be a tennis racket or a golf club or, a, a you know, or just your hands balancing you as you go through, but, you know, imagine uh, skating through the sewers or, you know, uh, there's so many, so many yeah. really cool things. And, and um, with, the he- with the headset, you have to draw yourself a, a circle of safety around you so you don't run into shit. But um, <laughs> um, it's, it's really, uh, um, I'm, I'm hooked on immersive stuff. Yeah, uh, nice. uh, Star Wars just had a game come out recently called Squadrons that's, that's super immersive. I, I've seen people on YouTube who've built cockpits to play that game on <laughs> on on Oculus and it looks just incredible. I think what you're going to start to see is more home devices. I th- you know um, there's a the I I keep thinking there's a thing like the Johnny Jump Up, you know, for little kids, mm-hmm. for adults, <laughs> yeah. where you can just spring where you're not very far <laughs> off the ground but you feel like you could be flying, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally into it. It's, it's going to be, you know, and imagine being able to do your spins and kicks and fighting, uh, like that. And, you know, I don't know if, if you have, you ever got tried a, a game called beat saber? <laughs> I have Oculus? played that one. I've <laughs> yeah. heard of beat saber. All right. So beat one. saber is just, you know, your, your hands are your, are your sabers. They look like lightsabers and just objects keep flying at you and you have to cut them and, and swipe them away. But it gets it gets really active after a time because you're jumping and, and spinning and all this and you can you can put in some um, you know some artificial intelligence to make you even more spectacularly gymnastic I guess wow. but um, um, uh, yeah I think that that in in the future what you'll see is that the you could get a group of people together from different places be virtual and go. Um, you know, there are four people who are identified as the turtles, and you go fight a, a big group of the of the foot uh, in in virtual reality. It'll I mean, happen. I mean, that's just that just brings me back to the playground in first grade, man. I mean, that's 
And and we we kind of we kind of scratched that itch on uh, a, a a season of of our podcast we did over quarantine where we played the original um, RPG, and that that kind of scratched that itch of getting together with friends and being the turtles again. Sure, sure. Um, I'll I'll throw it open to anyone else if we have any more questions, but we'll 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 wrap this puppy up. Does anyone have anything they want to ask before we leave? Did we cover it all? all I right. mean. Uh, Okay, so like, uh, so the third one was shot in in Portland. So all our exterior shots, all the forest shots, all that is like uh, up in Olympia and like you know, and and, and the the rainforest up there. So Portland, uh, Portland, you know, Oregon for Japan. Um, where did where did you guys source the um, the like the samurai all the samurai gear from? Did Golden Harvest send that over? No, I think most of that came out of prop shops in Los Angeles. Uh, okay. Right. No, no question. You know, the, LA has just about everything. There's, there's not much that that they that you can't source out of there. There may That's have been true. some, some uh, actual stuff from Japan that was brought over because I know that the the uh, designer went to Japan and uh, Ray Fort Smith. I think I I think he was. Uh, they they went to Japan. Let me see. Uh, oh, I don't have that contact list. I can't. <laughs> I was just looking through the second picture. I was looking through the through all the contacts because I'm going to try and get a hold of a bunch of people um, cool. from the second picture. But the third picture was, you know, shot in an old Navy hangar, uh, the, um, right, right next to the water. Um, just, it was down on the coast. Um, and it was, um, you know, we just reconditioned these two big old um, uh, ship. Uh, I don't know what, what kind of, um, planes they held in these hangars, but they were right on literally next to the water. So they were probably seaplanes of some sort, but, um, cool. that's where we built all the sets for number three. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. That's awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Cameron, Kim Dawson, thank you for spending your time with us this Sunday afternoon. We're glad you're well. We're glad you're healthy. And, uh, we will definitely have to talk to you again. And here's hoping that we see you in the future. Hey, Kim thanks, Dawson, everybody. Good to see you, Adam and Rachel and Chris. See you later, guys. Bye. We'll have to we'll have bye, to bye. touch base on that drive-in. I'll, I'll try to I'll try to make those connections. Perfect, <laughs> love it. That's that's fantastic. We'll right. be together soon. Definitely. Take it easy, sir. Bye. Cheers. Bye bye. Telling Scotty earlier, I've never been to social media. We got they, we got into it because of this 30th anniversary. And as you know, uh, Facebook, not much Twitter, but Instagram is just a boatload of fans and wonderful fans. And it, 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 it just, uh, grabs your heart, man. If people are so after 30 years, somebody who told me we're doing this 30 years later, go, yeah, let me smoke some of that too. Whatever that is, you're smoking. <laughs> but it's true. And I will meet, there's not a time I go out in public and meet. There were some guys that can move this this bookcase in my house here a, a few weeks ago, they saw, I got a big Ninja Turtle poster here and they go, Hey dude, Ninja Turtle, you're a big Ninja Turtle fan. And my wife says, well, my husband wrote the first movie. They go, no way, man, get out of here, man. <laughs> well, it's the- I, I, was living, I was in Guatemala when I saw that movie. My aunt brought it down on VHS, you know? And, and, and Bobby, I'll, I'll, I'll say this all day. We, we have you and Kim to thank for that. Cause, cause you guys kept pushing when everyone was still saying no. Well, thank you. I value you. Thank you very much for realizing that's true. I mean, somebody may, well, they'd have got it made somewhere, but we just wouldn't give up. And when I go talk to young kids, that's part of my talk is don't take no as an answer. Yeah, I you still really believe in it. 
I still want to do an episode where we interview everyone who said no to you. So if you give us a list of names, we'll we'll put it together and we'll make it happen. Are you kidding me? I'll I'll probably be buried by then. No, it wasn't that many, but it was, I'd say it's probably 30 to 40 different pitch meetings. Over, you have to remember, this is over a three-month time. Not to mention, as you know, I kept going back to Golden Harvest to Tom. Al, ninja, call them the Ninja Pinjin Turtles. <laughs> now he wants to know where his money is. Get in line, pal. Bobby, thank you so much, man. And listen, if you ever find yourself in New York, then definitely shoot us an email or Philly, whatever, and we'll uh, we'll we'll buy you lunch or dinner or something, man. One of these days. Who's in Philly? Are you in Philly, Adam? Okay. Yeah. Well, we're the, the surrounding Philly. area. <laughs> hey, you guys, thanks so much. No I'm honored. Thank yep. you, man. Always a pleasure. Oh, bunga, dude, and do that. Wow.